This podcast is part of the No Phony Podcast Network, the home of independent awesomeness. Did the groundbreaking music tech of the 1980s facilitate innovative film composers? Check your tailpipe for bananas and let's listen. Once again, it's time for the idiots. Objective defense of the 80s from a couple of idiots. Welcome back to another episode of The Idiots, an objective defense of 1980s pop culture from a couple of idiots. My name is Will, and joining me as always is my friend, and he's my co host, and I see him on a little box on a screen, and his name is Ray. Hello, Will. How's your day today? It's actually pretty good. It's been very nice out, hasn't it? Yeah, beautiful day. I've been outside even. Wow, I didn't go outside at all today. Yeah, you know, that. now that strikes me, you're usually out, outside like every moment you're not working at your full-time job as a podcaster, you're outside. Yes, I try to stay outside in the summer. I haven't seen you out there though. Hmm. Not today. Was I outside today? Oh, I was outside. I cleaned the kid's pool again. Oh, but you still haven't uh, rode a skateboard holding onto the back of a car. Tried to break dance on a piece of cardboard. Not uh, yet. What was the last thing you were going to do? Uh, a mute grab. Mm-hmm. Oh, oh, wait. No, not a mute grab. A um, Weddle. Weddle. Well, I think okay. it's a Weddle grab. So, hey, on today's episode, we're going to be talking uh, about, hmm, let's say, film composers who started out as musicians or musicians who became film composers. You're <laughs> no help as you shake your head. <laughs> on today's show, we're going to be talking about musicians who became who composed for 1980s films. Ooh, so there you go. And a little bit later, we're going to be talking to an example of, of that, Mr. Harold Faltmeyer, who, among many film scores, uh, composed the soundtrack, the score for Beverly Hills Cop, and a number of other films. And I'm going to tell you all about that later when we when we talk more about uh, this subject. Before we move on, hey, don't forget to like, subscribe, review, rate. <laughs> what? Not, you forgot the part where you say something You're, silly. Oh, wow. I haven't been funny yet. What are you, what are you talking about? Yeah, uh, Like, subscribe, and then you say something like, uh, send a letter to your pen pal so Wait that they can find out about the show. <laughs> you, you're the one who does that. All right, let's try it again. <laughs> hey, before we get started, don't forget to like. I'm going to say it slowly so you have a, a chance to think of something. Don't forget to like, subscribe, rate, review, all the things you can do technologically to keep in touch with the show and know when new things are coming up. And also send a letter to your pen pal or someone in prison so they can enjoy the show. See, now you're, just, now you're covering all the things that I usually add. <laughs> okay, yes. And put it in a mailbox, put the flag up, all those things. Okay, very good. Hey, before uh, we move on, let's get caught up on 80s news. Today in 80s news, I wanted to talk to you about uh, a new DC animated film that's coming out. Um, this one is Batman Death in the Family. Now, I don't know if you remember, maybe we even talked about this when we talked about comics a long time ago with Hoche Anderson, but Batman and the Death in the Family is a unique comic for one particular reason. Well, I guess a few things. One, beginning in the early 80s, they got rid of the old Robin, Dick Grayson, and they replaced him with a new Robin, Jason Todd, Mm -hmm. whose story was very similar to Dick Grayson's. Well, as it should be. Like all Robins should be circus families that were circus performers, tragic. Yeah, it's easier for billionaire playboys to just abduct children from the circus because less people care about them. (laughs) And if they're orphans, yeah. So you got to be an orphan and part of some kind of sideshow. Right. Right. And no one's going to go looking for you. Nope. Wow. You know, they need to now have a Todd Phillips retelling of the Robin story where Bruce Wayne has him kidnapped. Yeah. And he's in his basement, basically, right? Yeah. Okay, so Jason Todd uh, became the new Robin beginning in the in 1983, and after you know as it, stories moved on, they kind of tweaked his origin story a bit, and he became less like Dick Grayson, and fans didn't like it. So they did this uh, four issue run called uh, Batman: Death in the Family, and one of the issues ends with the possibility that Jason Todd may be killed by the Joker. Mm-hmm. And they decided to let the fans choose whether he'd be uh, dead or not come the next issue. And in order to do this, and actually they were inspired in part, uh, one of the writers was inspired in part by a bit that Eddie Murphy did on Saturday Night Live where he, he invited people to contact Saturday Night Live if they wanted him to kill a lobster. It was like Larry the Lobster. <laughs> I don't remember that exactly, but it, it, do, it doesn't surprise me that that'd be something. 
So on the back of uh, this issue where Jason Todd's life hung in the balance, they had two phone numbers, uh, 900 numbers where you can call and vote. And ultimately, because, hey, you know how people are. They voted to kill that dude off. That was like not a problem. Pretty sure it was about 85 or 90% for kill him. Yeah, probably. Yeah. So there you go. So Jason Todd was killed. So, hey, flash forward now to 2020 and on October 13th, Warner Brothers is going to be releasing a DC film, Batman Death in the Family. And once again, it's going to be interactive, but in the new way it can be interactive. If you buy the film on Blu-ray, you'll actually at some point in the story get to decide whether Jason Todd lives or not. And depending on what you choose, the story changes. We all know how that's going to end. Well, I don't know. What would you pick? Just kill him off. Because then the next question is, how's he going to do it? Mm. So then you get to decide if the Joker beats him to death with a ball bat or (laughs) runs him over with a car. This isn't like choose your own uh, adventure assassination. (laughs) No, no, this is, I think it's just going to be the one choice. Uh, uh, For me, uh, you know, look, we know what happens already in the comics when he gets killed off and no spoilers, you know, his story continues on in different ways and things happen. But I'd be curious to see how they handle the fact that if he doesn't get killed, like, what does that mean? Um, he's too old now, so he's replaced with a different orphan, and he has to become the butler. And he has to adopt a British accent of some kind? <laughs> yeah, he's forced to talk with a British accent. But he, does it, long. he does it horribly, though. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's partly like, Australian. Yeah. Is, is that Australian or Jamaican you're doing today, mm, new Alfred? It's part British, part Australian, and 100% racist. <laughs> the new Jason Todd. Uh. <laughs> In other 80s news... This comes to us from Entertainment Weekly. The Beast Master Director needs our help to find the cult classics film negative. Have you heard this story? I have not. So the uh, director, Don Cosarelli, who directed and co-wrote the uh, beloved 1982 sword and sorcery film about the warrior who could uh, communicate telepathically with animals, but chose mostly to do it with a couple of ferrets, right? I mean, he had his, he had a wide range of all kinds of species, and he ran with ferrets. Wow. They were kind of cool. They don't eat a lot. I, don't know, I would choose like a couple of panthers or something I could ride. At least something you could ride. Well, he had a tiger. Do you know how much a tiger eats? I learned this from watching them things on, on uh, quarantine. That whole, uh, what's his name? Joe Exotic. Mm. Oh. <laughs> you got to have a deal with Walmart for expired meat to feed that thing. You can't have a yeah. bunch of tigers with you. Or a deal with uh, Carol. <laughs> yeah. I don't even, I didn't even see, knew that show, but I know she might have fed somebody to a tiger, so. Yes, allegedly. So as the story goes, years ago, the uh, film studio sent someone to pick up the film negative, and that person brought it to their home and stored it in a vault in their home, and then eventually sold the home and doesn't know what happened to the film negative. So Don, Don uh, let me see if I get this again, Don Cosarelli has started a website, whereisthebeastmaster.com, in hopes that he could, you know, sort of crowdsource finding the negative. His hope is that once he gets his hands on it, he could actually restore it to its full glory in a way that it's never been seen since its original release, and maybe even better. How do these people get into these situations where they lose the master copy? There's like movies made about these kind of hijinks and adventures. Yeah. I mean, you're you're in charge of this. How did you let this happen? Why don't you just go to the guy's house then and get it? Yeah, it is really strange. So he has actually reunited with his co-writer and producer, um, Paul Pepperman, uh, in this effort, in this endeavor. What, Paul Pepperman? That sounds like a comic book character in itself. (laughs) That's a clue character. Hmm. The the Adventures of Paul Pepperman. Someone's got to search Paul Pepperman's trunk. (laughs) So if you remember, of course, the film starred Mark Singer who also starred in one of our favorite uh, short-lived uh, you know, summer replacement TV shows or whatever it was, V, uh, Tanya Roberts, who was uh, an original Charlie's Angel, and Rip Torn, uh, you know, who most recently was known for the Men in Black films and Larry Sanders show. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So what I didn't know is that Don Cosarelli, in addition to having directed Beast of Master, he did a number of other films uh, that we uh, like, including uh, 1979's Phantasm. Oh, that's a great movie. So the, the, so the pair of uh, Cosarelli and Pepperman say, hey, don't despair if we can't find the original negative because they have also reacquired the rights to the original film and hope to make another. So, you know, more than 30 years later now, we may get another Beastmaster. How's, what's Mark Singer looking like these days? Hmm. And can someone check on those ferrets? <laughs> I think we can safely assume that we could yep. just get some, some puppets or something. 
mm. for the ferrets. Puppet ferrets, yes. Not not for Mark Singer, for the, no. for the okay. ferrets. We had that David Bowie puppet. <laughs> I still think Labyrinth would be awesome with a David Bowie puppet in the you may get sequel. That. But uh, Mark Singer, I haven't heard anything about him, so maybe he's still ripped. All right, hey, let's move on. In other 80s news, and I guess our final story is, and this comes to us from looper.com, Bill and Ted's, ex- <laughs> there's a lot of uh, possessive words in this sentence. Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventures original title would have changed everything. And I think you know what this original title was. It includes what the original what the, the original time machine was going to be is included in the title. Yeah, it was something about a van. Yes. See, I knew you knew that. Yeah. It's Bill and Ted's Outstanding Time Van. Yeah. So Ed Solomon uh, recently revealed the title page for the original film's first draft and posted it to Twitter. And yeah, that was the title there. Uh, and that's because instead of a telephone booth, originally they were going to be time traveling through a 1969 Chevrolet time van. Mm-hmm. Of course, they changed this because just a few years earlier, and probably after uh, Ed and Chris had finished their script, Back to the Future is huge at the box offices and also uses a mode of transportation, uh, a vehicle, as a time machine. Also, one of the changes that we learned was that, uh, well, there's many things we learned, including the fact that they get the van from Rufus, who's not a time-traveling, you know, future man. Instead, he's just an older... uh, He's an older high school kid, I believe, like a senior or something. Oh, yeah. Well, here it says it's just their their 28-year-old friend. What you might be remembering is that some of the other changes were the fact that they were going to be 14-year-old kids that were hated in their high school. Instead of them kidnapping Napoleon Bonaparte and having him adventure through the mall and, you know, win the ice cream eating contest and all that stuff, it was supposed to be some other historical figure. Yes, it was supposed to be Hitler. (laughs) Yes, Adolf Hitler. So, yeah, for some reason they decided, you know, I don't know. Maybe it would be bad to have Hitler running around a mall and doing all these fun things. So, yeah, so that was another change. And, and a number of the different uh, historical figures that they were going to interact with changed as well. So they didn't use a van because of Back to the Future, but they used the phone booth, which, you know, we had seen in Doctor Who for you know, a few decades by then. I think, well, at least a couple of decades. So would it have really mattered? I guess in close, such close proximity to Back to the Future, it would have been kind of off-putting, I suppose. Seemed like a ripoff. <laughs> yeah, but ripping off Doctor Who is completely fine. Well, that's because America. <laughs> right. <laughs> that was a BBC show. <laughs> yeah. We could have had him do it in the blue, in the blue telephone booth in America. It would have been fine because it's ours yeah. now. No, no one would even notice. Yeah. You know, in these other films, like the Marvel films, we have these alternate timelines and, you know, there's a lot of uh, different TV shows, et cetera, that explore these kinds of things. Maybe there's an alternate uh, Bill and Ted film we can get where we, we see this this actually play out. I don't know. I think I'm happy with the one we got. Okay, very good. And I guess at this point, we can reveal that, you know, we did we have spoken to Alex Winter. Yep. We have seen Bill and Ted face the music. Yep. Although, because, you know, we want to be able to talk to other celebrities, that's all we're going to say right now about those things. Yep. Uh, except to indicate that we will have a review of the film after everybody's had a chance to see it, so a week from uh, Monday, this Monday. Um, and our interview will be played at that time. And actually, Ray asked him some questions about Bill and Ted sequels, so we'll get, so we actually get some answers. Yeah, we got a definitive answer out of him. Yes. And you asked him about another sequel that I think, you know, that's going to be big news, you know, about that other film and having a sequel to that film or not. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember what I asked. That's going <laughs> to... <laughs> hey, well, hey, it was like three days ago or four. Well, yeah, like it was, four or five it was a couple ago, days ago. Yeah, all right. It's like a, a lifetime away. I don't know what this show is this week, but I know that that was the end of 80s news. Dun, 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 dun. I could have made that noise right then at the Why? end of that. You may have. Sometimes <laughs> the show is like going to the gym. You know, you just, I don't know. You just got to get through those reps. I don't know. I've seen movies where people go to gyms. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, okay. So as we just mentioned... Uh, we're holding off on our interview with Alex Winter, which we had originally planned to release this week. We're going to release it next week because we're going to wait until after the film comes out because we want to be able to talk about the movie and play you our interview where we talk to Alex about the movie, the new movie that is, and we don't want to ruin it for anybody. That's the decision we made, and that's what we're doing. Well, also, we're not allowed to talk about the movie until starting on August 27th, and we don't want to break that rule for sure. Correct. And also, we do want to give everybody at least a week to see it before we say stuff. Well, I guess, let's see, it comes out the 28th, so they'll have about three or four days. Yeah, well, they better get on it. Yeah. 
Okay, so hey, uh, enough about that. Um, So today on the show, as I mentioned, we're going to be talking to Harold Faltemeyer. Yeah, the one who composed the Axel F theme. The boot, beat, boot, doot, doot, doot. And he also composed the score for The Running Man. He's composed the score for Tango and Cash, for Fletch. And a bunch of others. And he's written some songs you didn't even realize he wrote. And 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 Top Gun. And Top Gun. Top Gun. Come on. And Top Gun 2, which hasn't even come out yet. All right. But uh, before that, you and I are going to talk about other folks like him who actually had a uh, career in music before they ever composed for a film. And to make this, you know, uh, I think a little more interesting, at least to us, and isn't that what this show is ultimately about? Entertaining you entertain me and I entertain you. Yeah, well, I'm going to put this to you, and we're going to learn about some different composers in a way that you did, not unlike you did the trivia game, uh, you know, a little while ago, just a few, last week, um, where I'm going to give you some different clues, see if you can identify these musicians turned composers who worked in the music industry, had some songs, and then ultimately scored an entire film. We're not talking about someone who wrote a song that appeared on a soundtrack. Yeah, so Kenny Loggins will not appear on this list then, right? even though he wrote 800 songs for movies. Yes. And, the, and two of those 800 or maybe three were written by Giorgio Moroder. But yes, most of them. Okay, so to make this easier for you, because there's just so many composers in the 1980s, and I know you know lots of them, but you can't keep them all in the you know tip of your tongue and your ear, ear canals. Mm-hmm. I have provided Ray with the uh, seven musicians who composed scores for films. He has a list, and I'll, I'll tell you what they are here. Eric Clapton, Danny Elfman, Harold Faltermeyer, our guest later today, Mark Knopfler, Tangerine Dream, Vangelis, which I've also heard as Vangelis. I just pronounce it Vangelis, like Los Angeles. That's definitely wrong. <laughs> it's, it's either Vangelis or Vangelis. I heard him interviewed on a show, at a French show, and they said him Vangelis. Ah. Vangelis. Okay, and Hans Zimmer. Okay, so, all right, so here's the first one. Um, And to make this, you know, to give this, because we're talking about musicians, some of the clues will include clips of music, too. Okay, so here's the first clue. This composer began his career working with several popular bands in the 1960s, such as The Formics and Aphrodite's Child. Hmm. The uh, latter's album went on to be recognized as a progressive psychedelic rock classic. So Aphrodite's Child had a progressive rock classic album. That would be Eric Clapton? No, it's not Eric Clapton. Hmm. All right. Clue number two. In the early 1980s, he formed a musical partnership with John Anderson. You know, John Anderson from Yes. And they went on on to release several albums together. And here is a clip of a song that John and our mystery composer did together. Now I know you definitely got it. I'm going to go Harold. It is not Harold. Hmm. All right. Clue number three. A song from one of his scores was used at the 1984 Winter Olympics. Hmm. Well, I don't know who this guy is, so I'm going to guess him next. Knopfler. Knopfler. You definitely know who Mark Knopfler is, but it's not Mark Knopfler. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you do. When you, you know, I'm kind of glad you don't remember offhand because that might help me later. Um, okay, so fourth clue is I'm going to actually play you one of this gentleman's scores. This is the one featured in the 1984 Olympics. Sounds like Chariots of Fire. It is Chariots of Fire, but that's not the game we're playing. So, <laughs> so <laughs> I. I guess you still need to know I who guess, composed uh, it. Let's see, Tangerine Dream. Oh man, <laughs> I thought I was giving you such a. Okay, no, no, it's uh, Vangelis. Yeah, but that's not even. He did Blade Runner. He also did Blade Runner. Yes. Why wasn't that a clue? Oh come, no, that's not how we play the game. I, I could have oh. done that with you. Your trivia. <laughs> so in 1980, uh, Vangelis agreed to score the Chariots of Fire. Um, that was. Uh, uh, the film that we played the clip there. Um, it was weird, right, that he would score Chariots of Fire and, and using all these uh, synths because most scores at that time were orchestral and Chariots of Fire is a period piece. So it was really, you know, anachronistic to use a, you know, all this keyboard music for uh, some film that was set in the, I don't want to say the 30s, I think it was, or was it the 20s or 30s? Um, but of course, the the song itself became wildly successful and popular mm-hmm. way beyond the mm-hmm. film. Mm-hmm. 
It reached number one on the U.S. Billboard Hot 100 uh, for one week after a five-month climb. And the soundtrack album was number one on the Billboard 200 for four weeks, having sold a million copies in the U.S. Um, And in 1982, Vangelis won an Academy Award for Best Original Music Score. But he refused to accept the award because he was afraid to fly. Oh, I hear that. All right, here is your next one. He was the lead guitarist, singer, and songwriter for a rock band, which he co-founded with his younger brother, David. I'm going to go with Elfman. That is a really good guess, but that's not correct. In 1984, he wrote this song. I'm going to go with Clapton. No. That's a good Hmm. guess, though. Right. They're all good guesses because that's all they are. <laughs> or maybe I'm just being polite. <laughs> maybe they're all terrible guesses. Well, I guess if they were, if you guess somebody off the list, that would be a bad guess. Guess. Yeah. His most commercially successful single peaked at number one for three weeks in the United States. Again, this is as a musician, right? In fact, mm-hmm. it won Video of the Year at the third MTV Video Music Awards. Uh, Tangerine Dream. No. <laughs> All right, your fourth clue. Here is a score composed by this mystery composer. Do you recognize the score? It reminds me of Princess Bride. Right? Yes, yes. You got that right, but that's not the game. <laughs> yeah, this game. game sucks, and I can only get the questions right that I know. <laughs> Let's switch the rules. You got the uh, yes. You got the score. Let's move on. So that would be that would be Knop Knopfler or whatever. That's right. right. Yes, Mark yeah. Knopfler, the lead yeah. singer, guitarist, songwriter for No Clue. Dire Straits. I didn't know that was that guy's name. Yeah, Money for Nothing is the video that won video mm. of the year that year and Nah, uh, that all makes sense now. I thought his name was was Dire. <laughs> dire or Mark Straits. All right. I, I realized, I realized I don't think these are going to get any easier. Well, I've eliminated who did I eliminate? Evangelis and, and Knopfler. Yeah. And one of them on right. there is just on there to make an extra number mm-hmm. of listeners. So I learned from that last time I, I quizzed you <laughs> and there was only one choice left. <laughs> and you definitely got it right. All right. Since the 1960s, this composer released over 100 albums. That's ridiculous. That can't even be true. You want to venture a guess based on your choices left? Uh, I'm going to go Clapton again. Nope. Okay, clue he's, number two. He's dis, he has disappointed me three <laughs> times now as my first guest. <laughs> number two, this composer is considered a pioneer of electronic music. Uh, Harold? That's a good guess. Nope. In 1970, uh, this composer released an album named Electronic Meditation. It was a tape collage of Krautrock. Uh, oh, 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 this must be Hans. Oh, that's so close, but no. <laughs> And you're saying that because he's German, right? Yeah. Yeah, there's actually three, at least three German composers on here. Okay, I'm going to play you a clip of the a song from uh, Electronic Meditation. I believe this song's called Genesis. Wow, that's impressive. Um, <laughs> is that Tangerine Dream? <laughs> yes! <laughs> <laughs> That is Tangerine Dream. You're right. Yes, they are. And they are as well a German electronic music yeah. band founded in 1967 by Edgar Frosa. The, the group has seen a number of different personnel changes over the years. Had Like dozens of people have come in and out uh, with Frosa having been the only original continuous member until he, his death in uh, January of 2015. Tangerine Dream composed 20 uh, films, uh, scores for 20 films throughout the 1980s, which was something that Frosa had been interested in since the 1960s when he first scored uh, an obscure Polish film. Um, but they first got their U.S. exposure by um, when they had uh, a song from one of their albums used as the theme for Street Hawk. Hmm. Some of their most famous soundtracks uh, were for films including Legend, Risky Business, Firestarter, and Near Dark. And I have a clip here for uh, Risky Business. I don't think that doesn't sound like the one where they're on the train. <laughs> where the hobos. <laughs> <laughs> where Boxcar Willie is watching them do it. Right. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's it's it, this is that's con- what I just played was considered the risky business theme. I did listen to the one mm-hmm. from the train. I can't remember what it's called now. It's called like Love on a Train or something like that. But it, it is <laughs> something obvious. It's basically the same thing with like just like a less one less instrument or something in it. Tangerine Dream is is one of the bands that influenced the composers uh, of the of the music for the TV show Stranger Things. Uh, Michael Stein and Kyle Dixon. Okay, so you got two right. No, I got one. Got Nuffler. Oh, did I get Nuffler? Pull that out, yeah. Okay, so yeah, I got Tangerine Dream. I haven't got anything in the first or second. Okay, here is number four. He began his career playing keyboards and synthesizers in the 1970s with the band Krakatoa. Huh. I'm going to go with in the 70s, huh? Mm Mm-hmm. I'm going to go Harold. Nope. Good guess. He played keyboards and can be seen briefly in this band's video for this song. Our secret composer is uh, is playing keyboards in that song there because he was the keyboardist, at least briefly, with The Buggles, a band uh, created by Trevor mm-hmm. Horn and a bunch of other folks. Well, then I would have to go with Elfman. Oh, another good guess, but no. Sorry. Hmm. All right, here is a score that our mystery composer uh, composed. Uh, well, then it's got to be Clapton. No, it's Hans Zimmer. See, Hans Zimmer yeah. did Conan. Hans Zimmer didn't do Conan. No, Hans Zimmer... Uh, oh, no, Conan, that's Basil. Yeah, uh, Baz- yeah Basil that's, Polidorus. That's Basil. Right. Uh, yeah. Hans Zimmer did... Uh, Hans Zimmer did a number of films, including Rain Man and Driving Miss Daisy, and that film that that clip comes from, which is Black Rain. Yeah, he's done a bunch of movies. Yeah. That's why he's on this list. Huh? <laughs> that's part of it, yeah. <laughs> when Barry Levinson's wife heard a uh, soundtrack that uh, Zimmer had done for an apartheid, anti-apartheid drama, she recommended that he hire uh, Hans Zimmer to do Rain Man. And that's how the story goes. And often, he was off and running. Yeah. Okay, very good. So, all right, the, the first clue for uh, mystery composer n- number five is his older brother, Richard, recruited him to play violin for a musical theater troupe called the Grand Magic Circus. Eric Clapton. <laughs> you're just, hey, eventually you're going to hit, right? And then you'll... Eric right. Clapton's going to be the answer sooner or later. Maybe. There's one, one of them is just a fake, fake out. Well, he's not really a keyboard player anyway, so... Then Richard left the troupe uh, and created a movie called Forbidden Zone and had his younger brother compose the f- music for this movie. I have a clip of that uh, music for from Forbidden Zone. That's Harold. Poor Elfman. <laughs> All right. Sounds more, sounds more like Elfman once it gets going. As it gets going. Yes, it's Danny Elfman. That's right. Uh, Danny Elfman, of course, uh, legendary composer composer, one of the most prolific composers of the 1980s, actually got his start when he was just, had just been playing the violin for four, violin for four months. His brother recruited him into this you know traveling street show that he did, uh, and then ultimately had him score a film that he was uh, working on. Um, then later, his brother started a band called the Mystic Knights of the Oingo Boingo and drafted uh, his uh, Danny into to play keyboards for that group. So Forbidden Zone was the first movie he scored, but the next film is the one that led to his, you know, legendary status and and, and being well sought after in Hollywood. And here is a clip from that score. And that would be when he started his... (laughs) (laughs) I love this score. What is that, Beetlejuice? No, it might as well be though, right? It's, it sounds almost the same. That is from Pee-wee's Big Adventure. Uh, that was my yeah. I was just about to say Pee-wee. Yeah, and it kind of nicely you know scores the uh, sort of the Rube Goldberg machine that Pee-wee has making his breakfast mm-hmm. at the beginning of the film. Yeah, that's a good one. Interestingly enough, Elfman thought that after he did the Pee-wee Herman's score, that he would never work again. He said, "Quote: Who'd want to hire me after this?" In fact, I thought the score would get thrown out. I assumed Warner Brothers would listen to the score, toss it, and hire a real composer to do it right. <laughs> uh, of course, he went on to to uh, create the music for Summer School, Beetlejuice, Midnight Run, Big Top Pee-wee, Scrooged, and Batman, among many, many other films and TV shows. Yeah. All right, here we got one more left, and you've got two choices. Two well, choices. I know the answer for sure. Uh, you have two choices, Eric Clapton or Harold Faltermeyer. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, and here is a clue for your first, a uh, first clue for your last mystery composer. Although he'd go on to be a classically trained musician, he failed out of high school. Hmm. I got to stick to my guns and say Eric Clapton. Now, I realize by the time I give you the second clue, either way, you're going to get it. Yes, but I'm pretty sure Eric Clapton's not a very accomplished keyboard mm. player. Mm-hmm. So I pretty much knew what? he was going to be wrong every time I asked answered oh. him. Then why did you say him? What do you mean? <laughs> <laughs> you knew you were wrong before you even guessed? I thought it might be a trick. Oh, I so see. I what? thought eventually he would pop up as like a, a keyboard player. Okay, so hmm. it's not Eric Clapton, so you're going to get it now. But the clue, the second... It's Harold. It is Harold. So yeah, um, the other clues were that... Uh, well, the second clue is that he has a, a, a younger brother named Ralph who joined his first group, his first band, Melodic Sound, as a drummer and a saxophone player at the age of 12. And I have a clip of Harold playing in his band, his first band, on a show in Germany that was essentially the... And again, this is decades ago, but it's essentially the show in Germany that would have been like a... Germany's Got Talent. Hmm. You know, if such a show had existed, at, well, it did. It was this show. Uh, but here's it would Har- be, was it called Ickben I'm Musician? <laughs> uh, and here's Harold playing in his uh, band that many years ago with his uh, younger brother and a number of other folks. And Harold singing as well. Along his, uh, this is clue number three, was, what, you got something uh, there? No, I was going to say that was pretty good. Yeah, it actually is pretty good. So yeah, he was, uh, you know, into, not only did he study classical music, but he was into rock and roll and other forms of music. In fact, uh, ultimately he was plucked from Germany by a gentleman who did a, who had a studio, a very popular, well-known studio in Germany, in Munich, I believe it was, where bands from around the world would come to record. Bands, bands you know, huge bands. Uh, he recognizes uh, Harold's talent and brings him to LA to help him you know, record, uh, to engineer songs being recorded in LA because uh, he was, uh, Harold was working as an engineer. Um, and it was at that time, and this gentleman who recruited him was one and the one and only Giorgio Moroder, who we learned, we really honestly learned about, you know, just a few episodes ago as a, as a man who was not only the father of disco, but went on to himself to score a number of films in the eighties. and was a guy that they would hire to just write a hit song for a film or write two hit songs. And Giorgio himself wrote a bunch of songs that we thought were, you know, written by the artists who performed them, like Danger Zone. Kenny Loggins didn't write it. Giorgio Moroder did. Harold uh, followed very closely in these footsteps because one of the songs, so first, working in disco, Harold wrote uh, Hot Stuff for Donna Summer. So, And he worked with a number of artists at that time before he started getting into films. Um, but eventually, of course, he, like Giorgio, First, he helps Giorgio compose uh, some music for Midnight Express, and they start working together like that. And eventually, Harold, he does some films in Germany, but he lands a a big success here in the United States uh, with this uh, movie theme. I mean, one of the most recognizable film themes in the 1980s, certainly, if not all time. Yes, that is the... um keyboard version of smoke on the water for guitarist <laughs> it's like the first thing you learn to play is that oh, that riff right there on the keyboard and then you just and you assume you're a keyboard god at that point um well yeah this one's a little more complicated than that but i take your point i agree with you 100 percent harold of course went on to to score a number of films throughout the 1980s uh, some of our favorites include fletch top gun uh for which not only did he uh score the film he composed that theme you know with that ripping guitar he won a grammy for it i can't remember the guitarist's mm-hmm. name that's kind of bad um he scored in a, one of the films that are one of my favorite scores of, of his is, is this one here see if you can remember what film this came from it's one of your favorites this theme really, I don't know, it's unsettling to me. There's something about it that's really unsettling. Huh. More unsettling than the actual film is. It's not ringing a bell, buddy. <clears throat> uh, I wish I could remember the quote about, I'm going to put my fist down your throat and rip out your goddamn spine. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we laughed that day, remember? Uh, yeah, every time that comes, that one comes up, I laugh. And I can never, it's, uh, it's Predator, one of those movies. Yeah, it's a, yes, it's The Running Man. Or the running man. Uh, yeah, so Harold did the... When he's talking to Richard Dawson. Yes, right. 
So he did that. He did Fletch Libs, and he did Tango and Cash, among many oh. other films in the 1980s. Oh, and in addition to writing the theme or scoring Beverly Hills Cop and writing the hit, you know, the theme Axe Left, which became a hit on its all on its own on the radio, he wrote another of the songs from the film that was a huge hit for another artist. And you're not going to guess what it is because I was surprised to learn it. Did he write The Heat Is On? He wrote The Heat Is On! Isn't that crazy? For, for Glenn Fry? Yeah, for Glenn Fry. So you think that lazy bastard could have wrote it himself? <laughs> I mean, it's one of Glenn Fry's like biggest hits. <laughs> yeah. You know? Anyway, so Harold, you know, and we'll, we'll talk to him about this. You know, he's mo- mostly well known and associated for Axelov, but a much uh, bigger, more talented, successful uh, composer who began as a musician than you know most folks uh, even realize. Uh, and that's that. So he did terribly, but you know, these were I hard. Did. They're goddamn awful. <laughs> These were hard. Hey, I wouldn't want to bend your shoes, and I ex- expect you're going to have another revenge trivia episode <laughs> at some point in the future. Well, well we're going to put that one on the back burner because I'm going to have to really dig down and do some research <laughs> for the next one. All right. Well, we look forward to... Uh, well, I don't look forward to it, but you look forward to it. <laughs> Someone will look forward to it. Okay. So, hey, in a moment, we'll be right back with our guest today, Mr. Harold Faltermeyer. Our guest today combined his expertise as a classically trained composer with the latest technology at the time to create groundbreaking scores for several iconic 1980s films, including Beverly Hills Cop, Fletch, Top Gun, The Running Man, Fatal Beauty, and Tango and Cash. His unique and unforgettable compositions for two of those classics, Beverly Hills Cop and Top Gun, each earned him a Grammy Award. And while his name may be most associated with Axel Foley's chart-topping theme, his accomplishments extend far beyond the silver screen. Working alongside mentor Giorgio Moroder, our guest wrote the disco classic Hot Stuff for Donna Summer, and, along with Keith Forsey, our guest wrote the top ten hit The Heat Is On. And additionally... He composed and produced music for various media, including chart-topping albums, musicals, and video games. If you're fluent in German, you may read our guest's new autobiography, Hello Hollywood, My Life Between Home and Rock and Roll, in our guest's native tongue. If you're like me, however, you're anxiously awaiting the English version which is due out next year. Please welcome to the show the one and only... Harold Faltermeyer. Harold, it is so good to speak with you. Thank you so much for your time today. You're so welcome, Will. So our show is uh, a somewhat tongue-in-cheek defense of 1980s pop culture, but quite honestly and sincerely, having grown up in that era, I do feel like there was something magical about the 1980s. There was this nexus of different things happening as far as greater globalization. So we were exposed to, you know, one cultures were exposed to one another. There was uh, advances in technology, of course, that really it seemed to lend itself to this, I say renaissance and, you know, and again, somewhat tongue in cheek way, but it was, it seemed like a boom of pop culture and art in a way that hadn't been, we had maybe hadn't had in prior or since decades. Uh, in any case, you've played a big role in, in, in that. And so I'm very grateful to speak you, to you today. So again, we grew up, I grew up in the 1980s and our listeners, you know, are fans of that decade. What is your era that you, you associate with as far as, you know, the time that you most associate with music and film and art? Um, looking back, I have to say it has been the 80s because um, one, once we were living in the 80s, um, time was flying so fast mm. and um, we, we didn't know that that we were in the eighties, you know, it was just <laughs> right. running from one project to the other, you know, but then when the, the eighties uh, faded and uh, we, 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 we um, went to the nineties and, and there on to the, to the millennium. Um, when I look back, it was the eighties, which, which had this incredible innovative uh, moments. And let's face it. I mean, this was the time where, where computers, really hit in. 
mm-hmm. I was I was one of the first owners of a Mac Plus, you know. Wow. And this had this had the, this had it was it was like a everybody was talking about this thing and nobody could get it. So we 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 took every effort to get one and it was really hard to to find one then and we we got it over Japan. I, I don't know. But finally I had it in this I had it in the studio and I unpacked it and said what the hell is this gonna be? It's a little <laughs> box, you know. And what the hell is a mouse? <laughs> and so I was I was working with with it for for an evening or so, and then I said, Ah, this is this is something really really innovative, mm-hmm. and this could change our world. I knew that from the very first beginning. And soon soon thereafter, we we had our first um, software to make music with. The biggest problem was we didn't have any capacity to store our music on. Right. We had, we had. Uh, I remember on 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 uh, the, the the Mac Plus was sitting on a on a hard drive, which was called Easy Drive, and it had forty megabyte. <laughs> this was the, it was, and this was so big, you know. But you know, as you know, I mean, you can only store one song in good quality on a on a device like that, right? Mm-hmm. So it was rather frustrating, and we went back to to uh, the tape machines, of course, in the first place, and then the whole thing really took off, and and um, so. This was the this was the beginning of these possibilities of making music, making extremely precise music, with uh, little effort. Um, you you had uh, you had uh, quantizing uh, um, devices. You had right. the, the early drum machines like like Lin, sure, where where you could really emulate um, a really really cool beat without having a, a drummer in the in the studio, and this thing had its own sound. It, and it, it it led to a, a a daily big wow, wow! We can do this, we can do this, we can do that, and we can synchronize that with other machines. And all of a sudden, we had an, a little orchestra, rather limited at it, at that time, but working. And um, needless to say, out of this um, setup, a lot of creativity was born, because you had something which we didn't have before. Right. Before that, I know certainly that, uh, you know, I know you studied classical music, of course, uh, and I know that uh, you were um, a protege of Giorgio Moroder, who, um, you know, known as the father of disco. So it seems like you you have quite an eclectic background as far as uh, musical experiences. I think you have a lot of uh, sort of contrast and interesting juxtapositions. Studied classical music, but failed out of high school, right? It wasn't essentially in America what we would think of as high school. Um, again, classical music and disco, so many of these things. What was it that, uh, I guess, was your great, greatest influence as far as musical music? Or was it just these combinations that brought you to the, the, the moment that when you're finally in front of one of these computers, it sort of comes together? It, it, that, that, there are two ways uh, to, to approach it. One was the... the um, the very very technocratic way Kraftwerk worked mm, sure. in a in a in a in a very in a very um, harmonic um, um, limited uh, um, musical uh, style, but I always I always liked the the chord changes and the and the versatility of of the big composers like like um, like Mahler like like Bruckner like like uh, Beethoven Mozart and uh, Wagner, so. I thought there must be a way to to combine this, you know, and um, you just had to be able to play it. And one of the first, one of, but this was back in the in the in the seventies, and that's where it started. I, my, one of my first assignments with with Moroda was the soundtrack to uh, Midnight Express, right. and um, we used an early generation of synthesizers for that. But on top of that. I remember I did lots of orchestra arrangements and we used strings, we, we used horns, but real horns, you know, and real strings right. in the studio. And I found out that this combination of these both worlds mm. was something which attracted me. And I always kept on um, doing this kind of things uh, until to the point where, where uh, in, the, in the early 80s, um, Beverly Hills Cup came in, you know, and we were we were um, leaving all the the paddings and all that what you were mm. known from Tangerine Dream or Vangelis. Right. You left all that behind, and uh, we knew that we had to create um, a very sparse and catchy sound for this movie. And um, this was pure electronic, and this this then again led back 
to 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 craft work and, and to 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 um, to Bob Mook's uh, early sequences and all that stuff, you know. Yeah. Um, but I knew I'm I would miss out something if I would not uh, go back to to a combination of classical music and 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 uh, electronic music, which then I achieved again with uh, Top Gun, you know. Right. So. This was then I then I found then I found the 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 way back to the combination of these two worlds and I still I'm still working on on things like this because I think that's the most interesting thing to combine things from different centuries you know and this is this is like a renaissance you you put together and if you look back to the 80s now it it was this combination which which created these fantastic melodies which are still uh, in everybody's ear today and and for example, my kids when they when they grew up, they they thought this is something new, and I said, "No, guys, this is from the eighties, from the seventies. <laughs> we did that right. decades decades uh, before, you know." Mm-hmm. And it makes you feel good that the, that the eighties are on vogue, and um, they are getting played a lot. And um, I'm so happy that I that I was part of that. Yeah, you know, it's, it, you mentioned about uh, combining different uh, elements from from. From classical music and one of the things I miss of the 70s and I guess the early 80s and disco specifically is that we had so many songs well we had so many songs in the 70s different genres was it rock or what they'd call middle of the road or disco that featured strings and horns right. I mean across genres of music it was I wish we had that today I agree and when you're when you're composing a piece, you know you mentioned uh, Axel F, uh, you know, or the, the the soundtrack for Beverly Hills Cop. Do you approach it at that point as you would a more traditional score? This was this was a very difficult job because we we were working with with uh, close to zero examples of how we would do it, mm. and I was sitting in front of a of a white page. I didn't I didn't know what to do, and I was. Ex- Experimenting, but this is the great thing that when you start experimenting on something and you fail sometimes, <laughs> that's what makes you. That's what makes you um, uh, create something really new, you know. And you just have to dare. Just mm. it just it just go for it. And I know I was. I, I think I was close to get to get fired from from Beverly Hills Cop because <laughs> the first the first attempts of, of themes were not received uh, so well. Plus, there was the the the, the, the general problem that. A comedy these days was done by by um, classical composers like Olsen or, or Hamlish or, or whomever, you know, and they used like a Hanna Barbera style orchestra, you know, right. very very well done, very 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 clever, instrumentated, very well played, very well composed, but in a way old fashioned. It was done so many so many times, you know, right. and the producers and the director of Beverly Hills Cup said, we have to do something new. It has to be not this kind of music. So just sit down and try something. So I was trying and trying and trying, and I think it was the fourth or fifth attempt of a theme, which I I played to them, and and, um, it was still like a, ha, I don't know, what do you think? And you know how this is, you know, nobody dares to to commit, you know, because (laughs) um, you don't know, does this really work? Plus, we had the problem that the studio got got nervous um, that we are not using an orchestra and we are not using the the, the union type uh, situation which you had in in, uh, in 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 the in the comedies before. Even Eddie Murphy's uh, um, uh, Trading Places before was done in, with classical music, you know. Right. So it was it was very awkward to and to to convince the studio. But we I had I had Brockheimer and Simpson, sure, and of course the the the, the marvelous um, Martin Brest, who had a a a very clear idea of what he wanted. And when I played him the first theme, which which then turned out to be the theme of XLF, he was the first one to to say um, that's it, that's exactly what we need. It has the it's modern. It's it's uh, it's it's R and B ish. It's uh, it's funky. It's uh, it's clever. It fits the character, and it's very versatile. You can you can change it in 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 every way. You know. So I had a friend, and I got the support from the the, the three of them, and so we were able to convince the studio. Yeah, it's it's when I think about that theme in particular, you know, it's. It's like, like you're, to your point, it's like jazz. I mean, the intervals are kind of like, you know, jazzy, but also this sort of, 
it feels a little bit like the character could be sneaking around on an adventure, you know, this sort of, you could feel like he's tiptoeing or he's in a, on a chase scene. It's just, uh, right. Yeah. Right. Very exciting. And you know, what's interesting is uh, as a child, you know, as I guess I was a teenager when the film came out, it didn't strike us as new. It struck us as just, yes, this is exactly, right. it just felt yeah. like that's, you know, looking back, it's, you realize how innovative it was. I don't think folks realize, you know, much in the style of, um, I guess, in, in Giorgio Moroder, that in addition to, you know, scoring a number of films in the 1980s, you also were responsible for writing some of the the songs specifically that were the you know, ultimate hits for some of these films. Um, folks most no- associate you with the uh, Beverly Hills Cop. Um, is it, uh, I don't want to say frustrating, that sounds so negative, but this uh, idea that there's so much more music that you've contributed that maybe folks don't appreciate. The, the thing is that with with a, blockbuster and a, a um, innovation like Beverly Hills Cop, um, you get, you, you, you made something, something happen and you made something new. You, you created something which was not there before. Right. So everybody wanted to have that. So um, I got, I got tons of offers of similar movies. One of them I did, which was Fletch, which was pretty, pretty funny. And uh, Fletch was in between um, uh, Beverly Hills Cop and Top Gun. Um, so I thought, well, I'm gonna do that, and it's a, it's a it's a similar texture. It's it's of course different again, but it's right. it's somehow similar. But um, but then the office you're getting is um, always a, a, a stereotype. You're getting mm-hmm. another cop movie, another buddy cop movie, another. <laughs> then you can the next the next one I, I got then was was Whoopi Goldberg's uh, um, Fatal Beauty, you know. Mm-hmm. And then I said, this is it. I'm I'm not doing any of this anymore. And the problem is, I always wanted to do something where I could show my talent as as a as a classical uh, composer as well. Right. But nobody believed that I could do it. I was in a I was like typecast, mm-hmm. and um, this for me was actually the, the the biggest frustration. And this was 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 what made me leave the um, Hollywood in the in the early nineties mm-hmm. because I only got this, the same movies all the time, you know. Right. And then, of course, it gets boring, and you you start to repeat yourself. And the last one I did was was cuffs with with Christian Slater, and and this. And then I, I was sitting there, and and I was listening to one of the themes, and I said, "What the hell am I doing? I'm I'm, I'm copying myself, mm. and this can't be. So I have to refrain from that. You know, I want to I want to move on to something something else. I want to clear my mind. I want to do some really different. You know, and then thanks God, I had the offer of of uh, producing the the, the Pet Shop Boy with their um, so famous um, album behavior right. and this 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 led me out of the whole of the whole uh, cop movie uh, um, genre and i was so i was so happy that i could do that and i'm still happy that i have done it yeah, it's quite i mean i guess my point was going to be and to what you're saying is it, it is quite amazing and i don't think f- folks appreciate how diverse how, how talented the great number of contributions you made including working with the pet shop boys and a number of other popular artists um I was thinking of the heat is on. That's what I was thinking of. You know, right. I only le- recently learned about uh, how Giorgio's this idea that we did an episode a little while ago about uh, hit movie hit songs from 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 eighties movies. Learning how many of the hits that we think of is you know, uh, for example, you know, Glenn Fry uh, or Kenny Loggins were written by you or written by Giorgio, uh, and then they bring an artist on to perform it. Um, Anyway, but my point was being, you know, I have a new appreciation for for Harold Faltermeyer and for Giorgio and lear- learning about this. Um, what do you think about the resurgence of of synth music today? It seems like you know it's there's a a, a revival of it, and, in, including using not only the computers that can fake it, but actually getting the modules, you know, and people right. uh, tweaking their own equipment that they find. That's that's what you start start doing. It, but it, I mean, this is a this is a very desolate and desperate. Uh, um, experiment of course um because it would be it would be a lot better to to write brilliant songs you know but i'm getting and i'm not the only one i'm getting so many uh, requests you know for licensing um pieces of scores pieces of music pieces of compositions and i always wonder well in, on one hand i feel very honored that that i'm getting these kind of requests on the other hand i'm i'm sad because i think why don't you write stuff by yourself? Right? You know, right. and this is this is so this is so this is a sad story because take take today's uh, hit songs, 
they come and they go. They're not, they're not, they're not. And, and I, I don't think they will come, come back like the eighties songs are coming back and still getting new cover versions and getting played all the time, you know? And to me, this is a, this is a, a really sad story. And when I'm, when I'm, when I'm talking to youngsters and they, they ask me uh, f- um, for advice, you know, what would I, what would you do? What would I do? What should I do? And I said, well, make music, make the music you like. But uh, try to get, on the other hand, get a secure job because you never know if you really survive with this kind of music these right. days. Right. Yeah, yeah it's a, it, I make an effort uh, to to you know to your point about your children earlier and my, and uh, in your your comment here that for my children to understand where something came from, you know, there's that concept that all art is derivative in one way or another, but but there's so much we hear today that is, yeah, just they're trying to recapture or recreate something from oftentimes now in the 1980s that it is, it is disappointing that, uh, um, but that said, it's, it seems like, you know, we've got so many of these other eighties properties that um, are coming back in, in films or um, for example, I'm thinking of shows like, well, I know you, I, I saw online that you're friends with uh, Michael Mendel, um, who's yeah. uh, the German actor who's, you know, I love him in Dark, that runaway hit show. It's fantastic. But hearing the music, I can't help but think it's sort of an orchestral version or evolution of some of the things you were doing early on. Um, mm. You know, they, they push it a little bit uh, in different directions. But um, is there an opportunity for you to come back? And to your point, you don't have to you know, be so synth-driven now. It seems like it could be, you know, relying on strings or voices and... Uh, Right. It could be everything. I mean, I'm not, I'm not going into retirement now. I mean, we finished Top Gun now, but, um, I have some, I have some offers which, which sound really interesting. And obviously there, there seems to be a, a light at the end of the tunnel that I'm getting appreciation for what I want to do in the future. And if the right project comes, I definitely will do it. Right. Very good. So, and okay, hey, you know, I, I didn't. I guess I didn't ask and confirm, but you, you are scoring top the or Top Gun sequel coming out here, Maverick. Right. That's yeah. fantastic. Together with together with, uh, with uh, Hans Zimmer, we did it oh, together. That yeah. is super exciting. Very good. Yeah, we were did, we we're very disappointed on our show to, uh, you know, obviously the the pandemic has you know shook so much of our world, including the entertainment industry, that we're having to wait even longer to see it now. Uh, but we we look forward to that uh, uh, anxiously. Um, do you use? Do you still have any of your original gear that you use? The uh, Jupiter, the uh, your Roland. Yeah, everything. Everything is everything is hooked up and and ready to run. I have to, I have a, a studio here in, in outside Munich at our estate, and um, everything I ever owned is is there. Is that right? And is up and running. And I have a, I have a, a guy who does. A really serious maintenance on that because mm-hmm. some of them are really, let's say, divas, you know, and they don't work. <laughs> it would work like you would expect it from today's um, gear. Yeah, but still, I use it because it because it's a total a, a, a different story than than you would use samples, you know, and, and new and new uh, plugins of that very instrument. Right, it just sounds different, especially now with when we're talking about Top Gun. The, uh, one of the signature sounds from Top Gun uh, were the, the the tubular bells at the beginning, and we we did try to to use uh, modern synthesizers or plugins where you exact we have the exact same sound. Right. But at the end, we we went back to the original DX7s mm. and to the original sounds, and we tried to get one of the old. Um, of the old units to work, which was a <laughs> was not easy. <laughs> it was a real challenge, but we did, and we used it, and it it still sounds amazing. And what a, what a signature! If you hear this first bell, you know it's Top Gun. Mm. You know, and yeah, this is just one of the one of the the, uh, the thousands of sounds which are uh, just sounding a lot better than than a plugin. It's just some kind of magic in those boxes. Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, I guess it's because there's more of a physical aspect to it than just, uh, you know, zero ones and zeros on a computer somewhere. Right. Yeah. No, no, it was, and it was, it, it was, it was pain to, to program this because mm. you had, you had a, a early, um, uh, syntax, um, and, uh, and panel to, to work on that. And you right. had to go through what, to, through, uh, 
tons of menus to really get to the to the to the platform where you could change a sound and you really had to work on these sounds and today you just you, you recall um 50,000 sounds plus from one instrument and um, you just scroll through. There's no pain. You know, you oh, just yeah. go for it. But the problem is, with a uh, with the with uh, some money, and with it's actually it's little money. You can all buy that, and everybody can buy that, and everybody has the same sounds, and yeah. that that creates somehow a a digital uh, musical pollution in our world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was I was going to ask you about that. I'm wondering. In one way, it democratizes, I guess, you know, sort of music in this access, but it does uh what's your perspective do you think it's harder to to make it and to stand out as far as music goes is having all this access maybe made people less creative or um yeah it i'm i i really sub- subscribe to the, the to this fact that when you have to work on something and you really you really have pain to achieve things mm. You're getting a lot closer to your music than if you just are recalling everything and and uh, you, you don't have to work. It's like a, it is like a like a musical supermarket. You know, you just go in. Oh, I take this and I take this, and and you end up with tons of tracks which you don't need. While back back then we 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 were working on on every every single sound. Just for example, take take again um, um, the theme from Beverly Hills Cop or the entire score from Beverly Hills Cop. They are not more than twenty four tracks. First of all, because we didn't have more than twenty-four, right. we had we had two machines synchronized, which gave us forty-eight tracks at the at the, at the max. But we we only used we only used like 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 eighteen twenty tracks sometimes, you know. And we had and we made great great music. It was it was it was transparent. It was not overlaid with uh, with some kind of bullshit or whatever. Right. Which the the more layers you put on, it it's it's not getting getting bigger it gets it gets uh, uh, more more faced and and uh, and, and uh, smaller actually you know right. and the, the 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 power of a of a single track is the is it what what makes was what makes the power and the and the and the force of a musical piece do, do you think that having paid let's say paid your dues so to speak someone like yourself or you know even i had a dx had the rack mount you know back in the day and you had yeah you had to look right. at that little screen or uh, any keyboard in those days you had to look at those little screens like you're suggesting to get to what you wanted that but someone who grew up or came up paying their dues through that technology carries over that experience that even if you use modern technology you're still able to edit yourself in a way and have a work ethic that allows you to benefit from the, from the new technology, but not, uh, I guess, suffer in the way maybe new artists are. Right. Yeah. It, you know what it is? If you, if you take it, um, in doses and if, if you are aware and very conscious that you're not overlaying things, then of course, today's technology is a lot easier to work with and you get, you, you achieve more than you would have achieved back then. Right. And since the time is flying faster and faster by the decade um we we are running out of time but um if you are if you are if you're obeying this these rules of of not of not doing too much and and try to cluster everything um and trying to be original then i think Mm -hmm. you have a way out of the misery yeah yeah that is that is art right it's knowing when to step away (laughs) that's it it's done right so I'm going to try to pronounce the name of your autobiography. You'll forgive me for, for my German here. Go ahead. Gruß Gott Hollywood, mein Leben zwischen Heimat und Rock'n'Roll. Mm. Right. All right. It's very, it, it's very, it's very German, you know. It, actually, <laughs> it's very Bavarian, you know. The, the Gruß Gott is, is, a, is, a, is a greeting you say in, in Bavaria, you know. Mm-hmm. And it's... Um, um, you're, you're, you're greeting God actually, right? Mm. But this is, this is in, in Bavaria, you, you abbreviate it sometimes as well to, to Christi. Yeah? Mm. And, uh, Grüß Gott Hollywood is, of course, hello Hollywood. You could, you could say hello Hollywood, you know, and my life between, uh, between, uh, um, homeland and, and, uh, and, and rock and roll, you know, is, um, is, of course, actually my life. I've, I've been always going back and forth. And um, I, I enjoyed Hollywood a lot, but I was, I was very, very happy to get out of it uh, at one time as well. And when I, when I came back, you know, I'm living 
outside of Munich, I sat at the radio, I think, in a very, in a very um, uh, um, unique uh, uh, setup. It's an old family estate, you know, and, and the family lives there. My, my brother lives there. My mother is still alive. She just turned 94. Wow. And uh, we are all living. The kids live there and the studio is there. So there's a vivid life in this, in this little um, estate. And uh, it's so it's so great to come back here and to to sit down or or to hug a tree. We have old old uh, oak trees and all that. You know, you just sit there and enjoy the nature. And and um, once I've once I've been back here for like ten or fourteen days, I was ready to go back. You know, but I I needed this part of of uh, of, uh, of of my life. You know, it was so important. You know, and then I could I I had the power to do anything else. You know. Right. Well, and again, you know, like I said at the beginning, such a wonderful balance between old and new and, you know, rustic and, uh, you know, technological that uh, it's, you know, like like you said at the beginning, it's sort of something you set out to to live and achieved. And, you know, and this is uh, seen in much of your music uh, and certainly the music you want to create. Um, and I will thank you so much for your time today, Harold. Certainly greatly appreciate it. Good talking to you. Hey, like I teased earlier, uh, Harold Faltermeyer has contributed so much to 19, more to 1980s films than we even, than most folks even realized, than I even knew until I really, you know, dove down, dove down, delved, delved into, you know, his, his life story. But so I learned about Harold Faltermeyer, but I don't know if I proved anything. Did we prove anything today about the 1980s? I'm pretty sure we did. You, oh, we did. Okay. Yeah, as usual. Wow. Well, yeah. Um, we have proven yeah. beyond a shadow of a doubt that confident. All right. That the composers of the 1980s did more with the technology they had mm. at the time yes. than any other decade has with their super technology now. Right. You know, they're all, that's, that's that. They're Harold F. Ripoffs now. Yeah. Their computers and their fake Jupiters and Rollins and plugins and Moogs. <laughs> and, all right. Hey, we will talk to you next time on The Idiots. See ya. See ya.